The advice in this podcast is general in nature and does not constitute medical advice. Always consult your doctor if you are concerned about your child's health. We recommend always following the safe sleep guidelines. In the spirit of reconciliation, Dr. Fallon and Dr. Law acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and the continuation of cultural, spiritual and educational practices of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples. They pay respects to their elders past and present and recognise that sovereignty was never ceded. Hello and welcome back to another episode of Brand New Little People. I'm Dr. Fallon Cook and I'm here with Dr. Laura Conway. We are both sleep practitioners and we have PhDs in children's sleep and and childhood development. Um, Laura, do you remember last week we had a lovely question come in? Um, We we talked about Yessie and her daughter Um, and her daughter was (laughs) starting to blow raspberries. (laughs) when she was falling asleep in her cot yes Um, I remember yeah yeah so she had been you know upset and cranky about sleeping in her cot and had made such an amazing transition to cot settling that she had started to blow raspberries to fall asleep which is the cutest thing I've ever heard and Yessie sent us in a recording so have a listen to this it's so cute That's how Yessie's baby puts herself off to sleep, is blowing raspberries at her mum while her mum's sitting there shushing quietly. <laughs> I know what I loved about that um, clip, Fallon, it really made my day. Gosh, I laughed when I listened to it, is that you can hear Yessie trying to stifle a giggle as she's <laughs> shushing. <laughs> and I thought, wow, what a turnaround. So here was a mum who had really, really been struggling with settling her baby to sleep, had been dreading bedtimes. And mm. now, God, the, such a turnaround that baby is very happy in the cot. And mum's actually giggling. Yes. <laughs> I mean, yeah. so different. I know. I think so, so many parents, they just would not believe that their baby who... It's almost like they seem allergic to the cot sometimes. The minute you even try and go near it, they're just like, no, and all upset. That Yeah, it's actually possible to give them enough support through that process that they can not even just adjust to it, but actually find it fun. <laughs> and to yes. Blowing their little raspberries and, and babbling away. I love it. It's fantastic. So thank you so much for sharing that, Yessie. It honestly just made our day. <laughs> Yeah, thanks, Yessie. (laughs) Oh, it's so good. Um, Laura, you and I had a really interesting week because we, um, well, we got kind of grumpy, (laughs) didn't we, about about more misinformation online. There's just so much of it. And, you know, during the week there was one in particular that just really, really bothered me. Um, Mm. And I just thought it's a really good thing to talk about um, with parents and with our listeners because there is just this ridiculous amount of conflicting information on there and some of it does come from people who probably should know better. You know, they've actually got Mm. some pretty decent qualifications but, you know, they're out there saying some some things that are just really, really unhelpful to parents. Um, The example I sent through to you, Laura, was... Um, somebody who made this really big claim, and I'm not going to say what it is because I think it, that only just perpetuates the misinformation, but it was such a big claim made about sleep and settling that I thought, wow, like I've got to check this out. Like maybe there's some new mm. research um, out there. And 
because we are very grounded in research, we keep up to date with it. And when we need to change our approaches or our advice, we do. Um, so it mm-hmm. made this big claim and it had a paper listed, like had a reference with it. And this was a um, just a video on social media. So, you know, usually you don't see a reference there. But I thought I'm definitely going to go and have a look at this one and actually mm. check this out. Um, and I ended up actually contacting the main author, the main scientist on the paper, and they sent me through the paper to have a look at and the paper that was referenced had absolutely nothing to do with the claim that was made. They did not mm. even look at this particular thing in this paper. Oh. Yeah, it's infuriating. Just, it's infuriating, it really St. Fallon. Because we would often yeah. say um, to parents, you know, check out the qualifications of the person who's making the claim, see if they list references. And this person did both. And so yeah. as like a quick check... Um, that you know, we're saying to parents these are two things that would be green flags. Actually, yeah. we're not. It was someone who should have known better. And even yeah. us, as the experts, were like, "Oh, there, yeah, there may be something we need. Yeah, yeah, there may be something new, and we need to be um, up to date on it." Which yeah. is, you know, what we always want to do. We're always open to um, what the new research evidence shows us. It's not a static thing. Um, we're always mm. getting more information um, about sleep. Not all of it is good quality. Um, and so the fact yeah. that you went directly to the author and yeah, to, I just to thought get the I paper. need to actually read this whole paper and understand yeah. what was looked at. So, yeah, finding out that it didn't even touch on this claim that was made, I was really, really shocked. And I thought, well, I'm going to check out this person's qualifications who's made the claim and they had a PhD. So obviously, again, this is infuriating because, you know, a PhD and citing scientific research, normally those things are a pretty good sign that you're getting some good information. Um, but it wasn't the case in this case. And looking at that person's area of expertise, it was nothing to do. Like their, their area of expertise and research had nothing to do with the claim that they were making. So they were making mm. big statements, very alarming to parents, even though it's not their area of expertise at all, they're not active in the research in the area at all, um, and they're not even citing a paper that um, even looked at that factor. So mm. to parents, to the average parent looking at it, you'd think, well, this must be really solid advice. It kind of has a few of those yeah. green flags, but actually it didn't take much digging to just go, well, this is actually totally nonsense. Um, and I think yeah. that those parents, it's so... It's so frustrating. You know, I think it was the last week's episode we were talking about how, you know, for our parents, if they needed advice on something, they'd just chat to their friends and see what their friends had to say and they mm-hmm. didn't have all that conflicting advice from the internet to deal with. You know, today's day and age, it is just so hard, I think, when you've got these yeah. really vocal people. And the icing on the cake, Laura, <laughs> was when I realised <laughs> that this person just happened to be selling something that would be the answer to this particular problem which I'm again uh, not going to talk about but yes. you know so they had a financial interest in it it was in their best financial interest to um you know to kind of rile up a bit of contention and a lot of parents had commented and were very concerned about it but it gets clicks it gets views mm-hmm. it gets shared and th- for somebody who has made it their job to be you know like full-time social media person um, that's what they need to make money. Yeah. Um, and I think sometimes they're less concerned about what parents are going through and just kind of more oh. concerned about selling yeah. products, which I just find, yeah, really revolting. 
Yeah, um, me too. I mean, we see um, families coming into the clinic who, you know, some families are on their knees because Mm. they're just, um, you know, they're battered and bruised from (laughs) um, the misinformation online and they don't know if they're coming or going, nor does their baby or toddler. Um, Mm. And, um, you know, we just see the effects of this at the family level. And it, mm. I think that's why you and I get really quite um, angry about it. But I think we've also talked about Fallon, haven't we, how neither of us are particularly confrontational. Um, <laughs> no. So no. Uh, we, we're trying our best through this podcast and through Son Bell and through the clinic to disseminate sensible evidence-based advice um, mm. rather than um, – going toe-to-toe with some of these people online because it sends us scurrying into a a little warren (laughs) where we don't want to be. Yeah, and often these people too, the minute they're confronted, it gets really nasty really quickly Mm. and I just, I can't be bothered with all of that. Um, But look, I would say, you know, as a parent, if you hear some claim, especially on social media, um, and you think, gosh, what, you know, really? Like if it sounds a bit out there, or strikes fear in your heart before you go and change something about how you're parenting your child. There are some things you can look for. So, you know, in this case, if they have a PhD um, and, you know, claim to be really all about the science, actually go and look them up because it should be really easy to find out what their area of research Mm -hmm. is and what kind of science they do. And if the area of science is not meshing up pretty damn closely with the claim they're making, then I would not be so worried about, you know, the advice that they're giving. I think that would be mm-hmm. a pretty clear sign that that's actually not their area of expertise. Um, and, you know, if if there is a, you know, a, a citation there, a reference for some particular study, um, go and look it up. You know, you might not be able to access the entire scientific article, but y- you should be able to um, access the abstract. And from an abstract, you should get a pretty good idea of how confident the scientists were, Um, in making Mm -hmm. those conclusions because often an abstract will also say um, a little bit about what some of the limitations of the study are as well Mm. Um, you know and have they actually you know is the study about the claim that was being made I mean in this Mm -hmm. case it was pretty quick to see the study had nothing to do with the claim Um, Mm -hmm. but you know just checking in on those things I think if you hear something really alarming can be a good way to really um, you know start to understand whether it's something you really need to listen to or worry about. Um, mm. what, are, what other things would you look for, Laura, to really know that you're getting good advice? Um, I'd be looking to see is the person who is making the claims um, a clinician, a health professional, um, or do they mm. work closely with health professionals? Um, because people who are actually at the coalface face and working with families are really much less likely to make spurious claims um, yeah. and would be much more aware of the impact of their words um, mm. on their target audience. Um, and, you know, you don't have to be a clinician. You and I, um, Fallon, worked in just research um, for many years, but we were based at the Department of Paediatrics within a Children's Research Institute. Um, mm. And we were doing research directly with families. Um, and, you know, that we have a background in psychology. Um, and, 
you know, pretty obvious that we come from a, a good starting um, place. We're not there to make mm. money. And um, I think that um, just having a ear out for that, just have your spider senses going when you're looking at the person making the claims, just think, hmm, are they part of a great big multinational <laughs> or are they part of some social media influencing team um mm. what is their motivation for making these claims would we'll just help you take a moment to pause um mm. and think whether to take this on board um and whether you need to alter anything major about what you're doing with your baby's sleep yeah that's it and i also think too you know if their main thing they do is social media you know, like mm-hmm. if, they're, if they're mostly on social media and do very little or no work actually with families or actually in research um, and it seems like they're drawing most of their income from just being this big personality on social media, odds are, you know, there's some financial incentive that sort mm. of underpins that. Um, mm. Yeah, and they're going to be kind of motivated to say and do things that are going to get the most amount of attention. Mm. Um but gosh, it's so hard. And I just think, yeah, there's so many families that do kind of almost limp into clinic feeling battered and beaten by um, all sorts of stuff. The other thing I think too, you know, when um, you were saying before um, about, you know, people who actually work with families won't sort of make these big, broad, spurious claims because they understand the impact on families. And I think that's really important, especially in the sleep space. There are a lot of people who will say, really big general comments about baby sleep, like really big, broad things without realizing that there are always going to be families that that advice just doesn't apply to. And mm. those families are constantly feeling like they're not really ever, their babies aren't kind of included in those discussions mm. or their experiences aren't reflected in what's said there. And I think that, I don't know, it's just a real shame. It's hard for those families. I think, especially the ones yeah. who have you know, a baby with very low sleep needs or unusual sleep needs Mm. Um, you know, hearing, you know, I often think about, um, you know, there's a lot of discussion about the sort of fourth trimester, um, and there's a big emphasis on just always constantly, you know, like I've met parents who say, I, I've never put my baby down. And I'm like, what do you mm. mean? And they say for the first six months of life, my baby didn't leave my arms and didn't touch the ground. And they're really yeah. proud of that. <laughs> think, yeah. Okay. All right. If that if that works for you, that's fine. But there's such there's a lot of very vocal people saying, well, that's what everybody should do. And of course, it's not what everybody should do. I mean, that would no. send some people utterly crazy. I don't think I could ever have coped with that. Um, so these big, no. yeah, big broad claims that all parents should be doing this and all parents should be doing that are definitely red flags. Yeah, yeah absolutely. God, and you think about all those poor families in America where they're, and other countries where they don't get um, any um, statutory maternity leave. And, you know, so many parents, are, mums are having to go back to work two weeks after having the baby. Mm. And so there isn't the structural support in place, the infrastructure in place um, to enable those mothers, even if they wanted to, to hold their babies for the first six months of life you know what's yes. that doing to yes. the, the mental health of uh, and the the self-esteem of these parents mm. um so yeah take yeah. take a pause it's all if that is what you would like to do as a parent and you are able to do that and it suits you and it suits your baby um and you can afford it 
then go for it. But there's no need to say this is the only way to do it and everyone else is doing something really bad because actually there isn't any research yeah. evidence to back that up. Yeah. It's a choice. Yeah, exactly. And so much, so so often it does almost turn into a bit of a, you know, an online argument about the right approach and who's doing the best job and it's all just a little bit yuck, you know, mm. and a horrid thing to be exposed to. Um, mm. So, yeah, I hope that helps if you, you know, going online and seeing stuff that just makes you feel really yuck because it just flies in the face of what you've been doing or just seems really out there um you know really dig into what what is this person's qualification um you know is this their area of expertise um and just you know practice it's almost like a a muscle you've got to exercise at trying to block Mm -hmm. out some of this nonsense um and i think as well you know I, I think if you've got a paediatrician, look to your paediatrician for advice. Paediatricians are so mm. grounded in science. They take yeah. their role very seriously. Then, you know, generally not in the business of handing out poor advice when it comes to infant sleep and well-being and, and mental health. So if you've got concerns, have a chat with your paediatrician um, mm. or other child health experts. Um, you know, they really do know their stuff. Yeah, they've gone through their... Um their degrees you know that for pediatricians they've gone through their medical degree and then they've gone through all their specialist training so it's taken them years to get to that point and the same for other um uh pediatric health specialties um Mm. they um haven't just watched a couple of um online tutorials (laughs) and then (laughs) calling themselves experts they actually have got really firm grounding so yeah if you're ever in any doubt about your child's health and well-being um then seek help from people who are um sufficiently qualified to uh to advise you correctly Mm. yeah so look maybe we turn now towards um parent questions we had some really great questions come through this week Um, And maybe we start with Jackie. So Jackie and her husband have been really working together by the sounds of it, working through the Sunbell materials and really trying to work out um, the best way forward for their baby's sleep. And it sounds like they're doing a fantastic job. So well done. Um, They've been using, so they've been working on some cot settling um, and using the quick fade approach. So this is an approach involves a lot of hands-on support to help your baby make the adjustment um, to sleeping in their cot. And they asked, is it okay to do nothing for certain naps? So what she's saying is sometimes their baby will go down for a nap, no problem. Pop it down in the cot, off to sleep. They don't even need to do a single thing at all. And other times the settling's a bit trickier and they do have to sort of give their baby that support um, to get off to sleep. And is that okay? And I would say absolutely yes. (laughs) It's, It's more than okay. It's wonderful if your baby's really happily going off to sleep without needing help some of the time. That's awesome. Um, but, Laura, you had a good idea earlier about maybe just bringing in something to signal that it's bedtime. So tell me more about that. Yeah, that's right. So um, brilliant that um, Jackie's baby is um, sometimes going into their cot um, for the nap and going off to sleep um, and, and not needing any um, hands-on support, quite happy in um, their cot. Um All I would suggest is that um, it can be a good idea to have a very predictable um, phrase that you say and a final physical touch 
as you put your baby into the cot. So it may be that every single time you put them down into the cot, the last thing you say to them is, I love you, darling, time for sleep, and press your hand to their cheek or um, pat their chest um, five times and then turn away and um, yeah, either leave the room or sit on the chair or um, wherever it is that you're most comfortable being as your baby falls mm. to sleep. So even when... Jackie's putting her baby down for those naps and the baby's not needing any support. Just having that signal for the baby or just having that same thing that you do when you put them into their cot is a signal for them that they just very predictably have the same thing that happens each time. Yeah, I reckon that's such a good idea. And, you know, I still do that with my children even now. (laughs) Like, even (laughs) though they're... I mean, my youngest is, gosh, nearly going to turn seven um, oh, wow. I still have this thing that we do before I leave the room and they know that once we do that thing, like that, that's it, it's bedtime. We do like this two big cuddles, two big kisses and when, then we say one big sleep and <laughs> we do this high five as one big oh. sleep and high five and they just, I don't even know how that came about but we've been doing that for years, like since they were toddlers yeah. and it's just like the final thing they do and then they settle off to sleep. And it's a great way of just kind of saying, like, this is it. All requests are done with. So you totally use this with your toddlers who are asking for, you know, their third cup of water or just another book. Having that little ritual that means, okay, now it's time for sleep um, is great because it does become a sleep association. You know, when I hear that, it's it's time for rest. So, I mean, this baby, I think, is only about four months, but why not? Like, why not just start having that one little thing you do um, at bedtime? I think that's a great idea. I have a similar phrase that, in fact, my dad used to say to me when I was little. So it was the phrase that um, my dad, who was an Irish Catholic, would say, good night, sleep tight, God bless, don't let the bed bugs bite, see you in the morning, sweet dreams, I love you. It's <laughs> a long and, um, one. <laughs> so it's quite a long phrase. Um, yeah. And I say that to my children now. So it's carrying on through oh. the ages, intergenerational settling. <laughs> That's so nice. Gosh, you made me remember something else, actually. When mum were little, um, you know, Jimmy Giggle on ABC Kids was, like, really, really oh, big. Yeah. And the last, oh, God, the, I don't even know if this still happens, but there was, like, this song, this goodnight song, and the owl would fly away and he'd go, hoo-hoo. Yes. And so we now still sometimes do that. Like, if the kids just want that little bit of extra contact, they'll go, hoo-hoo, and we all answer, hoo-hoo. And sometimes like we've got visitors over and I think they must think we're mad. <laughs> but the kids just loved it. Like they'd do this little hoo-hoo. Oh, it's very cute. That's so funny. Oh, it is. Um, and Jackie also asked, so their baby, yeah, I think it's about four months of age, um, is waking up two times at night to feed. So, again, that's fantastic for a four-month-old. Um, two feeds a night's very normal and expected. One's at about 11.30 p.m. and then one at about 3.30 a.m. Um, and she's asking, if we were to try and drop one of these naps and resettle her instead, which one would you suggest we drop? And is it a problem to feed both times? Um, it's absolutely not a problem to feed both times. I think that's pretty normal um, for a four-month-old. And you mentioned as well that you, you're popping her back down in her cot awake after those feeds. Mm. Um, and she's settling back to sleep really well. So that's completely fine. So you could absolutely just keep offering two. 
um, for a while longer. Odds are she'll drop one of those pretty soon anyway. If you're really keen to drop down to one night feed, I mean, a lot of four-month-olds will get through the night in one feed totally fine. So if that's something mm-hmm. <clears throat> that you really want to aim to do, um, then you could try it. Um, as to which one to drop, I think, you know, there's two different camps. So often I'll suggest dropping the one earlier in the night because often the sleep pressure and the sleep drive is a bit stronger earlier on in the night. So if you mm. resettle them without a feed, often they're pretty quick to just go, oh, okay, I'm going back to sleep instead. Mm-hmm. Um, and that one's an easier one to drop than one close to the morning when they're that little bit more wakeful um, and might have a harder time resettling. Um but then a lot of people will do the, the early feed in the night and not feed again till morning and then find that that's absolutely fine. So mm-hmm. I don't know what you think, Laura, but I would say just think about which one which one do you find the most painful? <laughs> you know, Maybe that's mm. the one you try to, to try to drop. If you find the 11.30 p.m. one quite easy because actually you're a night owl and you don't go to bed until midnight, um, you know, maybe keep that one and drop the other one. Um, yeah. yeah well another way of thinking about it is that it's not dropping one or the other it's just moving to one feed and that feed would be the first time they wake after midnight for example yes yeah I often suggest that too it might be at 1am or 2am or something um, but I would say too you know if you try to drop a feed and you know she's just having none of it and it's really tricky I wouldn't keep persisting when she's no. only four months old two night feeds is really not um, you know not unusual um, so if you're finding it really hard to drop them, I'd just hold on to the two feeds for a little while longer and odds are in the next month or two, she'll probably drop one of those all on her own accord anyway. Mm. Yeah. Um, yeah. We also had a really good question come in from Sophie. So Sophie says, how little one is seven months old at the end of this month? And we're flying to Melbourne for a three-day holiday. Oh, sounds lovely. (laughs) Uh, She said her question lies mostly around naps. I'm a little bit nervous because um, my baby has gone from not sleeping. And since doing Sombel, oh, I've completely got this turned around the wrong way. So she says, I'm nervous because she wasn't sleeping well. But since doing Sombel, she's sleeping so, so well. She's linking her naps together. Um, She used to be a chronic cat napper. Um, Mm. But now she's having longer naps and she's sleeping through the night. Oh, my goodness. Well done, Sophie. (laughs) You've probably done some pretty hard work to get to that point. Um, She says, so while on holiday, I think a lot of the naps will be happening when we're out and about and have her in the pram. Um, Her morning nap is currently done in the pram, but the rest of her naps are usually in her cot. I'm stressing out because she won't get her usual 90 minute to two hour lunch nap in the pram because she's not you know used to napping for that long in the pram and she's wondering should she relax a little <laughs> or are there <laughs> any tips to what to do if she only does a short nap um look i would say i would relax a little i think babies yeah. often kind of surprise us they just go with the flow when we're traveling and usually actually go all right i wouldn't be too worried about you know a short nap um, it might be that she has an extra Um, short nap for that day so maybe she will just have a few cat naps Um, Mm. I wouldn't be too worried when you get back home odds are she'll fall back into the same great pattern would you agree Laura yeah I would Um, you want to be enjoying yourself whilst you're um, on holiday in Melbourne Um, so take the pressure off yourself Um, yeah as you say she might surprise you by having a longer nap in the pram but if she doesn't and only has um, a shorter lunchtime nap in the pram 
just think about giving her an extra nap um, later on in the day. Even it could mm. just be one of those short power naps that we talk about sometimes, Fallon, where it's just a 20-minute yeah. nap um, a couple of hours before bedtime just to get her through. Um, and that is often quite a... Um, it's a good place to give the... Oh, start again. Gosh, I tripped over my words. Um, it can be quite helpful to give a power nap in the pram when you're out and about mm. so thinking about how you are on your holiday it might be that you're strolling along the Yarra for example in the mm. late afternoon Sophie and so uh, your little one could have um, a little power nap in the pram just to make it through until bedtime if they've only had that short nap at lunchtime yeah yep I think that's a good idea um, and it sort of taps into the second part of her question which is she's worried about nighttime. Um, and sort of knowing they probably won't be home by 6pm to do the usual kind of bedtime wind down um, and they might be going out for dinner some nights um, and how she sh- should she manage that, um, you know, if you're out for dinner. I would say I wouldn't even worry about it. If you notice that your baby's tired, then lay that down the pram beside the table where you're having dinner, um, you know, pull the hood over a little bit. If they have a dummy or a sleeping bag, you might even use those things just to help to show her that it's time to have a sleep. Um, it might be that she then sleeps right through the morning. You get home with the, her asleep in the pram and she transfers to the cot and does really well. Um, but if not, uh, yeah, again, I wouldn't be worried. If you were, you know, going on a holiday where for several weeks every day was wildly different, then you might have a bit of trouble getting back into a rhythm when you get home. Um, but given that this is only a few nights, odds are she'll get through mm. it pretty well. And if you have things like um, if you regularly use white noise, um, take that with you. you know, some of them you can even clip onto a pram. So if you're really worried about naps and know that, you know, she needs to have her white noise to settle, take it with you. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And she finishes by saying, thank you so much for some bell. It honestly has made such a big difference. Um, at the end of the day, even if things do get thrown about a bit, I feel really confident um, that, you know, we know what to do to get things back on track again, which is so lovely. So thank you so much for that, Sophie. And I hope you have an awesome time in Melbourne. It's my favourite city. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, have a lovely time, Sophie. Yeah. Um, and lastly, we had a message coming on Instagram um, from somebody who's saying that her baby's suddenly not happy to settle back to sleep in her cot overnight after the night feed. So it was settling really well after the night feed, but now is really wanting to be held back to sleep. So they're really mm. cross being put back in their cot um, and really wanting to be held to sleep. So my first thoughts on hearing this would be it might be time <clears throat> excuse me, to trim down some of the day sleep a little bit. So over mm. time, the amount of sleep they need gradually declines. And sometimes parents try to hold on to a lot of day sleep for a little bit too long, which means that when they need to drop that total sleep need, it has to come out of the nights, um, mm. you know, because the day naps are being held on to so tightly. So have a think about that, whether it might be time to reduce the day sleep a little bit. Um, because we know that she can you know settle really well in her cot at all other times so Mm -hmm. if this is one time per day when they're not settling well in their cot often that's the first thing I think of is are they just a bit wakeful for some reason Um, and then I'd be just thinking about look probably just choosing one of the the Sombal approaches for cot settling once you've got that timing piece right um, and you're pretty confident she's getting just the right amount of day sleep it might just be a case of selecting one of the approaches and then just applying that really consistently overnight. So you're giving her lots of support, 
while she's realizing okay you know i'm not going to be held to sleep but mum or dad's going to be right here um supporting me to get back to sleep in my cot again and usually after a few nights they realize oh okay i'm you know <laughs> they're really not going to hold me to sleep they really mean it on this cot settling business and if you've been there to you know give them lots of support while they get used to that um then that's brilliant and odds are things will get back on track and and get easy again mm. um good all right well i think we could probably wrap it up there but thank you so much to all the wonderful Sombell families we've had one of those weeks where we just keep getting these beautiful emails talking about these big transformations that people have managed which is absolutely wonderful but if you are working through Sombell and you have a question or hit a little hurdle or even think hang on there's something here i want to know more about let us know because we constantly update Sombell we make sure that it is right at the front you know when it comes to all the science and stuff we've been talking about today we make sure it's full of the only the absolute best advice and we make sure that it's genuinely flexible so you can tailor it to your unique baby which is just so 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 important um so yeah if you've got questions send them in and thank you so much for tuning in yeah thanks everyone and if there's anyone um in your circle who is feeling totally overwhelmed by the misinformation out there and doesn't know um, north from south or east from west because <laughs> there's just too much um, misinformation in their feed um, please do um, tell them about this podcast um, so they can tune in to some sensible evidence-based advice and um, yeah also consider um, recommending some bell to them yeah all right guys have a fantastic week <laughs> thank you bye if you need help with your baby's sleep or settling, then you need Sombell. Sombell is Australia's first online paediatric sleep clinic for babies aged 0 to 12 months. It contains all the best resources from Dr. Fallon and Dr. Laura's sleep clinics, so you can rest easy and soak in your baby. To find out more, click the link in the show notes or visit sombell.infantsleep.com.au.